there. Welcome to the current State of Music podcast. If you've already tuned in before, then you know that this is a, a series speaking to people who have been creating music or working in the music industry for some time to give us their thoughts, tell us a bit about their background and their history. And to comment on where music's at right now and where it might go in the future. This time I am delighted to welcome a DJ that I've long been buying his records for a long time. And just this year I've played a couple of gigs with him. And it turns out that we're almost neighbours. So this guy's steeped in hip-hop, funk and soul, and it is my great pleasure to welcome DJ Format. Hello, I'm DJ Format, and what else can I say? Make music, I DJ, um, I collect records. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a passionate music person. So regular listeners will know that my first question always goes back to the beginning and ask them about where they sort of first became aware of music and what those influences were. Um, I would say as a child... You know, my mum always played the piano, so that's probably something, like, you know, she would regularly practice at home. And, you know, that was something I was very conscious of. Um, and my dad, you know, he would always play music. Like, for his job, he used to be sort of like a delivery driver from, you know, to the point where I can remember, you know, he, he was doing delivery jobs and he'd always have the radio on, you know, he'd always be flicking from station to station. If a song he didn't like came on, you know, he was quite passionate about his music in some ways. But, um, or if we're in the car, you know, Steely Dan's greatest hits or whatever. But I, I, I feel like, yeah, my, my mum and dad were both quite into music. So I was, to a certain extent, surrounded by it. But I guess that's, uh, you know, that's probably normal for most people, isn't it? <laughs> Leading up to the point that I sort of discovered hip-hop when I was, well, I mean, I guess I discovered it in the sort of early 80s when the first sort of, when it first reached this country, you know, with Herbie Hancock, Rocket, you know, the little breakdance thing and, you know, White Lines, Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, all that kind of stuff, you know, I, I, I did enjoy it, but I didn't really separate it from the other kind of pop music or whatever was in the charts. Oh, let me let me go back a little bit. The first, I remember that this is quite a, a thing for me, <laughs> uh, a quite a significant thing for me. I remember the first time music impacting on me so much that I had goosebumps and felt a feeling that I'd never felt before was when I heard uh, IOU by Freeze, sort of, uh, I don't know, is it is it considered an electro track? But, uh, you know, sort of, anyway, all, all this kind of early synthesizer stuff with with what what to me sounded like, you know, they, they, they're like taking people's voices and playing it on the keyboard. I couldn't understand these sounds. I, it completely blew my mind. And when it went, there's like a little solo, let's say, maybe, you know, two thirds or three quarters of the way through the song, where they go through all these different synthesizer noises, and you know, this was just something that was in the charts, and I taped it off the top 40. But I would play it back over and over and over again, and I would turn it up as loud as my parents' stereo would go, and I just got goosebumps on this, you know, on this uh, this synthesizer solo sort of section. It just completely freaked me out and did something to me that I'd never experienced before. I'd like to think everyone gets that feeling, you know, from certain music, if, if the music's right, but it's not something that you can choose or fake, you know, it's just something that if the music makes you feel like that, it's just a natural occurrence. And that was that was definitely the first song that I remember that, that you know, making me get that feeling and just, wow. You know, the early hip hop stuff that I was hearing, you know, Herbie Hancock, Rocket and stuff like that, 
I was into it, but I continued listening to just normal pop music in the charts. It wasn't really until kind of 86 into 87 um, when I started hearing Run DMC, LL Cool J, The Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, uh, probably more but they're the ones that just spring to yeah. mind because that was the stuff that was kind of easily accessible at the time you know that you'd be exposed to because I grew up in Southampton and you know and, and not even in the city centre you know just the outskirt so that was when I think I really started to form my own tastes yeah. in terms of I found something that really connected with me and and well it proved to really be you know, it kind of started to shape my life from that point, I guess you could say. When I left school, I, I literally had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I think it was quite a shock to me that there was like a real world out there that I, I had to figure out what I was going to do in it. And I remember being in an assembly where, you know, our careers advisor was saying, is there anyone in this room who doesn't know what they're going to be doing when, you know, I think it was, you know, we'd done our exams or we were maybe still going in for occasional exams. And, you know, it was basically, I think there was like something like two weeks before that was it. We were really completely done at the school. And I remember him saying, you know, is, is there anyone here who doesn't know what they're going to be doing in two weeks time? And me and my mate Howard, <laughs> We, were, we both knew, you know, each other's, you know, situation. We didn't know what the hell we were doing and we, we didn't want to speak up and say anything. But I think I went home that night and maybe spoke to my dad or something. So, what the hell am I going to do? And he, he basically had some friends that he played football with that had a carpentry business. So they took me on to do a YTS, a youth training scheme, as a carpenter and joiner. So that was kind of... You know, that was what I what I did. You know, I wasn't thinking I'm going to be a DJ, you know, or, or anything like that. That that would have been ridiculous. I was just, yeah, getting ready for the real world and and music and graffiti. That was just my hobby. So I kind of carried on, did the carpentry apprenticeship. Um, I, I, I well, actually, at first, I guess the first big step was uh, to buy some turntables with one of my old friends. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, I should mention that. Basically, my parents, you know, had heard this hip-hop that I was playing and they weren't, you know, they weren't into it at all. And they just thought it was another childhood fad in the same way that you do go through a lot of fads when you're a kid, you know. Absolutely. Roller skating, then the next minute it's skateboarding, it's BMXing, you know, I did all of that stuff like most kids, you know. So they were just like, ah, you know, not taking it seriously, just like, ah, it's another fad, you know. There's me wanting turntables and them saying, we're not having that. We're not having that in the house. We don't want to hear this stuff any louder. You know, we're not. I mean, they, they, I've always had a real good relationship with my parents, but they were very adamant that nah, we wouldn't. You know, you're not having any turntables. So, all right, fair enough. I respect that. I live at their house. So what I did was, when I got a little bit of money for my 16th birthday, me and my friend Carl, we sort of pulled our money together, and we bought a set of. It was like a. Um, like an old, someone had built this unit basically, like turntables and a mixer, all built into this giant console. Yeah. And we bought these, uh, or this, uh, this setup from a, a friend's older brother that was into hip hop. And he, I think he was like more 18 or 19 at this point. And he'd kind of like given up on it and, you know, he'd probably got a good job and wasn't interested anymore. So he, he was kind of liking the fact that we were young and enthusiastic and he could sell the turntables to, yeah. to some kids that cared. Um, so we bought those turntables and like I said my parents they weren't having any of it so we just used to keep the turntables at my friend Carl's house because that was the only place we could do it so I would have to go around to his house at first to practice and it wasn't until you know a few months in that I think you know my mum was more the soft touch of my two parents as, as is often the case so I was like you know working on my mum just like hey mum you know I'm practicing a lot around Carl's house, it would be nice to have the turntables around here, you know, just to, you know, it's, it's only fair, all that kind of stuff, and eventually, you know, I guess she talked my dad into it, and they realised that, okay, maybe he's taking it a bit more seriously, and from the time that I had the turntables, you know, in my bedroom, that was it, I was, I was just 
possessed. I was, I was, I, <laughs> I probably turned into a recluse, but I just, that's all I wanted to do was, was scratch records and play around with records. And it was just such an exciting thing to discover as a kid. I mean, it just gripped me like nothing else. I'm interested to know then when does it become something more than a hobby the, the graffiti I soon realised yeah look okay I like it it's fun but I'm really no good at it and I don't know it, it's not like I really felt that I was going anywhere with the DJing as such but I really just sort of let go of the graffiti and kind of went a bit more with the with the DJing and, and actually I think the next the natural progression with DJing you know you start out just messing around on turntables and, and learning to scratch and maybe doing little mixes you know recording yourself doing mixes and then I think certainly for my era anyway I don't know what it's like for kids now I guess people now they can just buy a laptop and they can just have an instant studio right there at their disposal but in my day, like I say, late 80s, going into the early 90s, the natural sort of, um, you know, evolution would be to start with your turntables and doing a bit of scratching, you know, recording yourself, mixing, you know, recording yourself, scratching. It's important to listen back, hear, hear what you sound like. <laughs> that was a shock to me. I thought I was much better than I was. Actually, oh no, oh, I'm terrible. I'm out of time. And um, But then, you, you know, you'd, you'd progress on to getting a four-track, uh, tape recorder yeah. so that you could you know for anyone that doesn't know you know you could record yourself say doing a mix and then you've got you know three other channels or, or depending how you you know how you rig it up but both basically you've got other channels where you can over overdub yourself you know scratching for example or be a little bit clever and mix in an extra record over the top or you know so that's that's kind of that was what I did I went from you know just yeah straight DJing and scratching to then doing four track mixtapes um, which were you know which were rubbish I was just experimenting and having fun but yeah in terms of me being able to DJ myself there were really no opportunities to, to do anything like that and the first time I think I ever got on a stage and you know did some scratching was at one of these kind of gigs that I, that I was mentioning it was a blade uh, gig where Blade didn't actually turn up. There was just a sign on the door saying, you know, Blade's had to cancel due to a cold or something like that. And I remember it was around Christmas time because I remember I'd been out on a works Christmas do. I used to work at a sports centre. And um, we'd been out on this works do and I was quite drunk, which is probably the only reason I kind of had the, the balls to get up and try and do some scratching because normally I would have just probably kept myself to myself. But... Um, but yeah, my friend Steve, he's a, he's like he's still a friend to this day. He's a little bit older than us. Um, he was DJing on that particular night, and he I, I don't know I must have been signalling you know signalling to to him that I was keen to get up and scratch or something. And he you know he let me get up there, and yeah, that was the first time I I ever got up and did some scratching on stage. But I don't even know what year that was. That was probably like. Really hard to remember, like '92 or something like that. And you know, I probably didn't do anything like that again for a while. You know, it wasn't until I joined a rap group called Suspects and guys from Derby in like '95, I think something like that. That's when I started doing gigs. So unless I've unless I've completely forgotten, you know, missed out some big detail that I should have remembered, you know. I was, yeah, I wasn't really, and, 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 yeah, I wasn't DJing, and, and I was kind of at peace with that. I, I, I didn't have any desires to, you know, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm not a shy person, but at the same time, I don't want to be the centre of attention. I definitely don't want to be on a stage. You know, I still find that really? at times uncomfortable now. Yeah, even after all these years. It annoys me when I get nervous because it's like you're trying to talk to yourself and say, you know, what are you getting nervous for? You're just doing what you love. 
you know, in front of people that want to hear what you do, that probably will like it, you know, what the hell are you getting nervous for, you idiot, you know, that, but sometimes it just happens and you can't explain it. Usually the things that make me nervous are equipment. If there's something wrong with the equipment or there's something about the setup that's not good, that's the kind of thing that will throw me. It's not, it's not, you know, just because I've walked in a room and, oh no, I've got to play to all these people. I mean, I think I got over that the day that I, played at Brixton Academy supporting Jurassic 5 and like, I mean I was like almost paralyzed with fear to begin with like, like 5,000 people in here it was completely packed but once you just get out there and do it and then ah, it's okay you know. So in some of these interviews you really get the impression that the artists have some sort of big vision and a master plan and so I was keen to know if if Format had like a career in his mind or whether he was just more living in the moment I didn't really have any master plan it was just I was just like a regular guy doing a regular job and I just had this music obsession that you know when you're that age I mean I, I guess all people are different but for me at that age I never really thought about the future actually it's probably been a problem throughout my life <laughs> the fact that I don't often think about the future enough um, I just I definitely at that age I just wasn't worrying about the future I was just worrying about the here the now and all I wanted to do was make music you know make beats do mixtapes buy records and have fun you know, that was that was it you know, I was real keen to, uh, you know, to sort of network with people. I mean, not again, not in a kind of cringeworthy, hobnobby. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. Or, or you know, it was just a genuine enthusiasm and and, and sort of need to meet other like-minded people because I really felt limited where I came from. It made me, you know, really sort of try harder to for for everything. Like so, just from day one discovering hip-hop and finding other hip-hop albums you know what else exists you know to to like i say later having to get out of the city and actually try and meet other people through going to a hip-hop jam in bristol i met arrow from a lot of people will know very well from brighton who was in the crew first down at the time whose records i knew and loved and so we met up and again we really we kind of instantly hit it off and to cut a really long story short we started working on we started sort of trading records you know trading beats and breaks and whatnot and and i my knowledge was very very you know limited at that time you know i was learning a lot off of him he, he knew his stuff back in the days um before i did and and so we were kind of trading a few records and then we decided we wanted to work on some tracks together you know he was still rapping at that point but he was also very much a producer so he would come up to you know my place in southampton or my parents place and we'd you know we'd we'd sit there making beats and eventually we would decide yeah we're going to sort of work on an album and it was just the catalyst for me for change. It was like, I've had enough of Southampton. There's a whole scene in Brighton. There's people I'm meeting, you know. So that I got up and moved, you know. I just decided I'm moving to Brighton. So I think this was in '97. And again, I didn't have a plan. It wasn't really a realistic thought of I'm going to have a career. It was just still me and my little fantasy world just thinking. I just want to make some music that I'm proud of. I just want to have a, you know, put out a record that has my name on it because the Suspect album had come out and although, yes, I'd done some of the production, a lot of the raps were written before me and Ben even came in and did the beats. You know, they had the concepts and they wanted us to make the music that would, yeah. you know, sort of fit it. And, and, it and, and whilst there's some stuff on there that I'm proud of and some stuff that I'm maybe, you know, even embarrassed about, um, it, it didn't feel really so much like my project. It was more their project that I'd yeah, stepped yeah. in on. So, you know, me and Arrow were working on what, what I hoped would really be more, you know, my thing and our thing. 
I don't know. We 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 did an album together as first down. I by this time DJ Heist had left the group. I'd sort of taken over as the DJ. There was a whole bunch of us sort of involved in the production, and it was Arrow and Correct that were doing the doing all the lyrics by this point. Demas wasn't a part of the crew at that time, so we basically did a whole album. And then I remember when we finished, and we were just sat there in the studio, just like, okay. So you know, we've done the album. You know, we had it there on a cassette. You know, right? You know, we've done the album. What, what, what now? Thanks to Mark B, Blade, Taskforce, Skinny Man. That you know, these kind of guys, London Posse. That that you know, it was more of a British thing. Then there was, you know, there was you could actually have hope as a as a UK rap artist of of getting somewhere. But at the time that we, you know, did that. It was still kind of an up-and-coming sort of thing in the industry, and and people didn't really take it seriously. So we just didn't really have any labels to take it to, and I think we all got a bit disheartened. And I started working a lot more on sort of my instrumental, you know, b-boy type tracks, like things like Last Bongo in Brighton. That's probably around um, English lesson, things like that. You know, I was always into the cut and paste. You know, being a DJ, I was always into that cut and paste style of record that it didn't feel like anyone was really making that kind of record anymore and especially with DJ tracks as well people weren't really making DJ tracks Yeah, so we were going off and, and you know going to Eastern Europe and places like that, but I also was still wanting to go to the States and I went specifically to Canada, to Toronto, because my girlfriend at the time had a friend that, that said we could come and stay with her just on the outskirts of Toronto. So I went digging in Toronto and literally I was, I, I nearly lost my mind. It was, I mean, this was in like 90, I think it was like 98 or something like that and there were just so many good record shops there I was just finding stuff every single day I was digging all day long and yeah my poor suffering girlfriend I don't know how she put up with it because we didn't have any form of holiday it was just me digging every single day but while I was there importantly I would give you the short version but I'd met the record dealer Aaron Keel who introduced me to Abdominal because he just put out Abdominal and DJ Phase's first 12 inch um, The Vinyl Frontier so he gave me a copy cut a long story short I wanted to meet Abdominal and it was through meeting uh, a rapper that okay wasn't American but he was Canadian but he had he had the right voice and the right style that I felt would suit the kind of beats that I was wanting to make that that I couldn't necessarily give to you know the first down guys for example that I was working with because not because they weren't capable or anything like that but just it just you know the UK voice in my opinion didn't suit those style of beats in the way that the the American or the Canadian voice did it's just a personal choice so that was when it really that was the first time it really sort of started to seem like it could go somewhere and you know I don't like to use the word career because I hadn't been I wasn't thinking that big but it felt like it there was actually a future in it that I could maybe actually earn some money maybe or or I don't know it could just lead to something and then uh, again I can't remember the exact year but maybe it was 99 my first 12 inch came out on an American label it was English lesson the original version the b-side was vinyl vasectomy which was a remix of vinyl overdose which was a song that I'd done on this bomb return of the DJs you know compilation again I've just realized now how I'm missing out on all these details so I don't you know I'd released a few records I'd done a few bits and pieces but yeah it still wasn't I still wasn't thinking of it in terms of a career I was still just thinking this is great I'm making a couple of records I'm getting my name out there that's all I wanted to do and it wasn't an ego thing it was just a pride thing and a, and a kind of self-satisfaction thing to make these records like the records that I loved when I was a kid growing up I just wanted to do that kind of thing 
mics like that confetti lyrics twice as nice You think I'd rhyme in double time it You can search the earth and say I trouble finding raps Demonstrating this level of dominating Dopest DJ on the racks Full mad is devastating with a scratch This on time It's the reason short shot And I'm sporting my rhyme Let's go for more man I guess it's fair to say that Format became a bigger name when he released music for the mature b-boy so I asked him about that 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 was 2003 that was March 2003 and in fact it came out when we played you know I was mentioning earlier about the the, the, the Brixton Academy gig to you know supporting Jurassic 5 and 5,000 people well we played the Saturday and the Sunday night uh, and the sort of second to last week of March I think it was and I think on the Monday literally the next day that was when music for the mature b-boy was released so it was just such amazing timing you know we did a we did a live radio one session on steve lamac because obviously charlie and Arkill were in the country they'd featured on the the song we know something you know i was able to go to radio one with abdominal we performed a bunch of songs and then charlie and Arkill came and performed we know something you don't know and then they all started freestyling together while i was cutting up some records i mean that was when it started to feel like, okay, again, I still don't want to use the word career, but that was when it started to feel like, wow, okay, something's happening here. Because I didn't have any expectations, you know, and the record label didn't really have any major expectations. I don't know, it was just, a lot of it was just making it up as you go along and massive slices of luck along the way. I was, got, I was very fortunate that the record label that I was with at that time, Pias, they had a really good team and a really good support network. But the, the staff that worked there particularly, they were just, everyone was on the same wavelength, really supportive, really behind the album. I mean, I'm sure they were behind everyone else on the label, but things just, honestly, things just all fell into place. There's such, you know, yes, there was hard work involved and, and you know, I, from myself as well as, all, you know, the people at the label, but like you say, just, just, you know, the fact that you could go and buy it in your local HMV, I don't, you know, that's kind of lucky that things like that happened for me and the fact that I went on tour with J5 yeah. and therefore got exposed to so many people, you know, the perfect audience. And of course, the record label, P.S., they loved the fact that they had, well, they had, I was going to say they had an album that was kind of in the sort of J5 vein. Well, I mean, hell, it had two of J5 on, on the record. Yeah, yeah. So... I guess that was why it was also easy for HMV and at the time there was FOP, I remember FOP yeah. selling a lot of my albums as well. Um, they were very supportive and, and it, it just, yeah, it really, it really far exceeded what, you know, what anyone had anticipated. interested to know how obviously with the success of the first album how then you 
approach number two and what pressures, whether real or not, you place on yourself. I think the reason, that, or, or the biggest pressure that I put on myself, and in hindsight, I don't, it's not like a major regret, but I do think that I would maybe have done it differently if I had my time again. I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to regret, but the thing that I did which I'm questioning, was it the right thing? I really made sure that that second album was heavily based around songs that could be performed live. So for example, that's why there was a lot of songs with Abdominal and Decisive together, because we'd already decided, we, meaning me, Abdominal, the record label, you know, we'd decided that moving forwards, we wanted to have an extra MC because as amazing as Abs is as a one, you know, well not a one-man show, but as in what, you know, as as a, a front man on his own and me behind on the turntables. That's why, I've, yeah, it was it was heavily sort of geared towards what we would perform live, and and I don't know, there are certain songs when I, like I say, when I listen back personally, that I'm like, yeah, yeah, I could live without hearing that again for sure. It, the album did really well, um, kind of comparatively, at that time. Basically, what had happened is be between my first album in 2003 and my second album in 2005, the whole digital download thing really came into effect badly. Like, that was when, you know, there was a, such a big change in the industry and, you know, as, as you know, the record industry wasn't really ready for it. So. Although my second album sold literally half the amount that my first album sold, comparatively with other things, you know, for example, on the label, you know, on the same label, and other things that we you know, because you, you, you're able to get access, you know, you know what other albums have sold, you know, we know that comparatively my album did do really well, um, and we knew that from doing the performances, the live shows, especially the festival dates, you know, when we did like Leeds and Reading and places like that, we knew that we had a bigger audience. So it wasn't a case of, oh, you know, because we've sold less, that it's it's some sort of failure. Yeah. Um, we knew that we were growing. I, and again, I say we, because although it was, you know, it's, it's ultimately my name that's on the record, you know, it's a DJ format album, but I say we because, it very much was, you know, it was more than me, you know, it was me, abdominal and decisive and, and, and also we, meaning, you know, the guys at the record label yeah. that were a massive part of the success and part of the team and, and my manager, Rich, it was, you know, so yeah, very much a collective. We all felt, you know, things were going well and, and to plan and it was just this whole, yeah, digital, you know, people downloading things digitally and really doing away with CDs and even vinyl, you know, was, was a bit of a struggle yeah. at that point. So, yeah, it was a funny time to try and sell music. <laughs> So with his second album, a relative success compared with other acts on the label at the time. What then was driving him to create a third or not, as the case may be? I, I, I realised that I was getting a little bit tired of performing the same songs and I didn't quite know musically where I wanted to take the next album. Right. So I think it was around that time that my manager said, oh, Fabric, Fabric are interested in you doing a mix for them. And to be totally honest, I 
just thought of fabric you know I'd never been to the club at that point you know I thought that it was just like a big dance music thing and not at all related to the sort of music that I played hip-hop soul and funk um, of course I was wrong but you know at that time I, I was kind of a bit like oh really fabric okay are you sure you know I almost had to be convinced and of course that was literally one of the best moves I ever made you know again right. thanks to my manager <laughs> making me do it really because doing that mix for fabric where I mixed the sort of funky hip-hop that I'm I guess known for alongside the soul and the funk and a little bit of funky rock and you know whatever just mixing that all together because that was the sort of stuff that I like to play when I DJ it kind of it opened me up to a, a much bigger audience and presented me kind of very much as a DJ rather than just DJ format and abdominal, you know, doing yeah. live rap shows. Because I, I, I should point out that when I used to first do the the um, live shows with abdominal, especially on that first tour with Jurassic 5, we didn't have that much material to perform. We, we could only just about sort of drag out well I shouldn't say drag out that sounds derogatory but we just about managed to stretch yeah, yeah, out yeah. A, a 30 minute show yeah. you know because we didn't have that much material together so I would come out and DJ for 30 minutes and then Abs would join me and we'd do 30 minutes so it ended up being an, an hour opening set so I, so I was DJing and I suppose you know, I was DJing on my own before he was joining me, joining me on stage. So I, I'm probably doing myself down and, you know, making it sound like I wasn't DJing much at all before this time with the fabric mix. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably not remembering things very accurately. I was, I was DJing, but it was really after the fabric mix that I started to get so many more DJ bookings and really, you know, probably establish myself more as a DJ. That was when it really, again, that was when it really felt like, wow, this is my job. Because I was just away every single weekend, you know, every Friday and Saturday minimum, you know, maybe sometimes in the week as well, but I was gigging just all the time. It was good times, actually, you know, I guess that's where I really hopefully became a, 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 a half-decent DJ. <laughs> I started experimenting a little bit and at that time Simon James the Simon sound had basically had you know he played a big part in my my other two albums you know my first two albums by you know mixing and engineering some especially the vocals you know because I'm not great technically with some of that stuff there's a certain amount I can do but Simon was always heavily involved and, and really really great so we we started hanging out again a lot more at that time and it just happened that we would we were just sort of musically we were just on the same wavelength and wanting to he was sort of getting back into doing electronic stuff and really quite getting experimental and I was sort of trying to move away from the typical hip hop stuff that I'd done before and going more towards the weird and wonderful records that I'd been buying when I was out digging so we started making stuff together that initially was supposed to just be maybe tracks for my next album and it became obvious very soon that what we were doing wouldn't really fit with that and it was its own thing and yeah. because I loved the name the Simon sound we just said let's just go ahead and do you know let's just that's the group name it doesn't matter that you know we we tried to be honorable about it and not let my you know DJ format name sort of tr supposedly sell the record you know we wanted the music to speak for itself yeah. which we soon learned was a big mistake because if you have got any sort of name or any any advantage you've got over other people you know that means that people might check out what you're doing yeah. you've got to use that we you know that was one big mistake so um yeah but quite often i'll get people still coming to gigs saying oh yeah yeah I, I got music for the mature b-boy or maybe mention the second album and it's almost as if they you know they're like what, what have you been doing all these years it's like uh i've been making music the whole time you, you know what have you been doing you stopped listening i guess you know that's yeah. fair enough people you know people grow up have kids you know get married whatever have different priorities different responsibilities and music's not such a part of their life but yeah. for me I'm just this idiotic Peter Pan character that never really grew up properly and turned into a proper adult. I've just continued doing my music because 
Well, because I'm able to, quite frankly, if I'd have had to have, you know, gone out and got a, a regular nine to five, maybe it would have sucked the enthusiasm out of me, or maybe the negative experience of once having a good career that then went to nothing might have been enough to, you know, make me want to give up. It's, it's impossible to say, you know, I've got friends, really talented friends that have given up for similar reasons and it, it makes me feel terrible. Um, that they've gone through that, but, it, but ultimately, so much of it is just luck. You know, you, you, you can have all the talent in the world, work hard as hell, but sometimes you just gotta have the right breaks. And I, and I always say to people, I've just been really, really lucky. Hopefully people, you know, don't despise me for it or anything like that. Cause you know, you get people, ah, oh, Jamie bugger. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but you know, I've always been very open about that. Such a, a, a big part of, of, you know, having any sort of success is luck. I want to know where's he at right now and what's coming next for him right now well what's coming next is I've been on and off for about the last year and a half so I got a little bit interrupted by doing the album with Abdominal but over the last year and a half or so I was working on a kind of a cut and paste kind of tribute to the meters uh, anyone that's not familiar with the Meters, you know, a legendary group from New Orleans that worked closely with Alan Toussaint and was kind of his, they were kind of his go-to studio musicians, like his house band. And they did some of the most influential, incredible music. You know, they're credited by some people, you know, the Godfathers of Funk alongside, you know, James Brown, that kind of thing. But anyway, the Meters made a lot of incredible records that were sampled by the hip-hop records that I grew up being very inspired by in the late 80s and early 90s. So I did a similar thing with Cool and the Gang a couple of years ago where I, I did this sort of homage to them using all of their early records and kind of scratching certain things the way that certain hip-hop records did it you know a little nod to them so I've, anyway I've been working on this thing same thing with the meters but it's just been such a long drawn-out project that it kind of it got to the point where I was just overthinking it and driving myself crazy and then my good friends Dom and Giselle who who live close to me um, we found out that Gis uh, Giselle had cancer for the for the third time come back uh, just before Christmas and so a lot of people locally you know anyone listening in the Brighton area might be aware of, of this anyway because we've had fundraisers you know at the Black Dove Vinyl Veterans Nights there's been things down at the the Big Beach Cafe um, and there's upcoming events, so you know, please tune in. <laughs> but um, anyway, when finding out about this, I, I, I wanted to, you know, basically Giselle has got the the option to to get some really good treatment for her cancer that's not available. It's it's available from the NHS, but it's not something that they currently fund. So basically, a lot of friends have been chipping in, uh, and and even people that don't know her, a lot of people have been incredibly giving and kind so we've been trying to do various fundraising things and I decided I'm gonna do this meters when I release this meters uh, 45 7 inch it's gonna be just a fundraiser for, for Giselle's cancer treatment so that would be my next thing so I only want to you know I don't like to you know talk about my own stuff too much but this is one thing where I do want to talk about it a lot because it's for such a good cause of course the music I'm immensely proud of uh, but it's such a good cause that I want people to know the story behind it. So, okay, look, if you like the music, of course, please buy it, but be aware that this is where the money's going and you're, you're doing something great, you're helping a great cause.
So it's at this point we got onto the subject of the current state of music and the music industry. How he views it. And what his thoughts are. Yeah, the, the music industry is always a difficult one for me to talk about because I'm obviously a part of it, being an artist who releases records, music, you know. I'm a part of it, but at the same time, I have as little involvement with it as humanly possible and it's not something I really follow and I'm a little bit, not ashamed, but I'm certainly not proud to admit that I don't pay that much attention to other current music by really anyone uh, of many genres, I'm, I'm sorry to say. I just kind of do my own thing and I live in my own little weird world where I'm just searching for old music to sample, to just listen to at home, to inspire me or to play out when I DJ. It's mostly old music. So when I'm, you know, when I am occasionally, you know, exposed to new music or thinking about the the industry the way it is now, my my feelings are, are not always that positive. Having had a career or having a career that spans from the 90s to now, obviously the one big issue has been the internet and technology. And I was wondering if that's played a part in his career as well. Um, I don't think it's... I don't really think it's affected my career too much because of the type of person that I am. I've just kind of kept doing my own thing my own way. Um, I think for, 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 for artists releasing, you know, up and coming artists, new artists that have no profile whatsoever, you know, releasing records now or releasing music, it doesn't have to be physically on a record or whatever, is difficult, it's very, very difficult to get noticed because it's so easy to just put stuff out there you know there's just everyone's a DJ aren't they or everyone's a beat maker or whatever so it's very hard you know to it's, it's it'd be easy for me to sit here and say well I don't need a record label that's because I've already got the reputation because of all the hard work from years ago when I was part of an industry that was still possible for you know an artist to succeed with a record label behind you you know on a small level um, I'm eternally grateful to, to the people at PS Records for giving me that opportunity. So now I'm in a position where I can release my own records and I've got enough of a following. I'm not talking about selling a lot of records here. I'm not talking about a massive fan base, but I'm just saying enough that financially it keeps me just about ticking over and mentally, <laughs> It's kind of okay, for, you know, it's good for your head to know that, okay, I'm not just a reclusive weirdo. Well, if I was a new artist coming out now, signing to a record label would feel like a pretty kind of pointless move. I've got to be honest. I mean, there's not many labels out there that that are going to do anything for anyone and, and 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 on the other side of the coin i mean just to be fair to the labels it's very hard for the labels to make money so i understand why they want to keep you know half the publishing or they want to be in control of the publishing and da, 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 and they're not really giving any money to the artist to even record the album basically it's it's just a bad deal for everyone it seems like the labels are offering very little and giving very little, you know, after the event, you know, after the records come out. They did, basically, there's just not much money to go around. And on a subject that's very close to my heart is the art of DJing and how that has been affected by technology and the ease of getting music and whether the art of DJing and the skill is being lost. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Basically, it went from our generation, me and you, we would go out to hear a DJ 
because we wanted to be educated by them, musically educated. We wanted to hear what are the latest songs that they've got that we don't know about, and whether that be the latest releases, if it was hip hop stuff, or them playing soul and funk records from the 60s or 70s that, you know, had just been unearthed, you know, going down, I remember seeing Kev Dudge down at the, uh, the vaults years ago, things like that. You know, you're wanting the DJ to educate you. You know, you're open-minded to whatever the DJ is going to play. Obviously, you're not going to like everything, and sometimes you might not even be that happy about it. But ultimately, you you're trusting the DJ and respecting the DJ. And nowadays, it's the total opposite. It's like people come along and want to tell you what to play. They want to tell you what they want to hear. They just want to go out and get drunk and hear their favourite song that they've just listened to at home while they were getting ready to go out on repeat. 15 times they just want to hear that again now that they're drunk and they're not interested in in any of the rest of it and of course that that doesn't apply to anyone but sadly that is a general feeling that you know anyone that DJs regularly and depending on where you DJ and maybe you know what level you're at and how you know might depend how much you get hassled you know I'm very careful about some of the gigs that I accept now because I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm trying to force my music on a, a room full of people that aren't interested in that kind of thing and just want to hear commercial stuff that, that they know and love because you're never going to get that from me. The, the, you know, there's not, you know, people ask me some, promoters ask me some, who can I book that's like you, that, you know, that plays that kind of stuff and has the name that everyone knows? And it's like, well, that's a difficult one. You know, I can yeah. reel off a whole list of great DJs, but you won't necessarily have heard of them and the audience won't necessarily have heard of them. But you should, you know, book any of my vinyl veterans, you know, uh, colleagues, because they're all fantastic and they've got great record collections and they're nice guys. You know, they're not going to turn up and give you attitude. You're going to get great music all night long, but quite often the answer is, well, you know, people don't, you know, won't really know the name. But well, so that you know, in a way, I I end up winning because people sort of know the name, but then I end up losing because I can't give people the commercial crap that they so often want. trying to do my thing my way it's, it's you know but but to, to, to you know to sort of end it on a positive note for example I've recently been working on putting together a new set where I kind of hopefully tick all the boxes where I'm playing really recognizable stuff that people know so let's say for example a James Brown record but I might cut up two copies of, of a you know a key part of that record you know just to extend it then I might go into a, a, a rap record that sampled that James Brown record and all the while I'm keeping people dancing you know if you're if you're into hip-hop and you don't really want to hear too much soul and funk you're not going to be mad hearing a James Brown record and vice versa if you're you know if you're into soul and funk you don't really like hip-hop that much but you're not going to be too mad hearing a rap record that's done to a James Brown record you know so I'm kind of ticking all the boxes everyone keeps dancing and anyone that's there interested in the sort of let's say the nerdier technical aspect of what I'm doing you know cutting two copies oh it's on seven inch you know different people get you know uh, get impressed by different things so now I've been putting together different little sets doing this kind of of, of, of uh, you know well set I'm just using the word set too often but you know yeah Basically, that's what I've done, and it, and it gives me, it, 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 it kind of brings back my passion for DJing because when it works well, which it usually does, it's a great feeling for everyone, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, fighting an uphill battle the whole time. He's a turntable whistle and no other can match. Format on the twos and ones. Mums and rappers about to lose their... It's always at this point in the interview as well, whereby... I like to know what their views on the future are. Yeah, I don't know where things are going. Like I said, it's always been a bit of a weird theme throughout my life that I'm not very good at looking into the future. If I'm at home, I'm mostly working on music or, or enjoying music in some form or another. You know, I'm preparing 
records for a, a gig or I've just bought some new records and I'm listening to them I'm thinking about where I can put them into one of my sets I'm thinking about how I can sample sample them or maybe I'm working on some music I'm chopping up some samples or maybe I'm just relaxing and I'm playing some records you know but that'll be on my record play you know I'm not really doing a lot of stuff you know listening streaming and listening digitally sometimes yes sometimes it's very convenient but it's not really the way that I personally consume music because I'm a weird old man I'm 44 I've been collecting records you know as soon as I had money to buy records that was all I wanted I, I can't really explain it I've just you know it's the way I process music I like to look at the artwork I like to read all the credits that's uh, that going back a little bit that's how I used to get a lot of knowledge about other hip-hop groups yeah. at a time when there wasn't a lot of information out there you'd read the back of the record covers and look at who were they shouting out who were their crewmates you know who produced the record who featured on it you know all of that stuff and that extends beyond hip-hop to then when you're looking for samples and okay what labels it on who produced it what were the session musicians that's how you you go all that kind of knowledge so when you just listen to stuff online again there are there are arguments for and against so I'm not knocking you know digital or streaming or anything like that but when you listen online you don't get that whole visual aspect that you do when you're when you're you know you've got a physical product in your hand and you're reading the sleeve notes you're you're taking in the artwork so that you forever associate that record you know the, the sound with the the vision and you know with the how it looks People switched from vinyl, you know, most DJs used to use vinyl, then there was obviously the option of using CDJs, right? But but basically we all started out with vinyl, then all of a sudden there's Serato or whatever other types of, you know, digital DJing and all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to say everyone, but damn near everyone switched over, especially in the hip hop world, switched over to Serato DJing. Yeah. A lot of people sold their collections as a result and just stopped using records, stopped using vinyl. And I've noticed in the last, let's say, three years particularly, that a lot of these DJs have really gone back to DJing, but with, but, but not so much with LPs, but they've really embraced 45, 7 inches, whatever you want to call them. And they, people have said to me that, yeah, it is the physical... You know the visual aspect they just didn't like just looking at a screen and they like the visual aspect of having a 45 and you know being able to relate certain artwork you know even if it's just on the label yeah. you know I think that, that it does help the brain associate certain things if you're just looking at a screen and you've got to just think and you know pluck out a thin air oh what what would be the next record I could play after this I don't I don't know why visually it's easier but I could flick through records you know and and just see that see them recognize them by their artwork and it would spark different thoughts to if I was just looking through a screen same as same as you know because obviously I'm a you know record collector same as when I'm looking at records in a record shop versus going through you know when you get a, a list of records online and you just got to trawl through loads of loads of text it's like it drives me mad I want to physically dig the physical records in the record shop I want to flick through because that's how my brain processes the information much better, that's how I take it in. And we always finish by asking the artist if they've got any advice for aspiring musicians or artists or industry wannabes if they've got any tips or advice they can share with us well, yeah my advice would just be just do what you love you know just just make music or DJ for the love of doing it because chances are you're not gonna make any money out of it and you know you're gonna just be in for a big disappointment and it's better to just do it for the love of it and you'll get back out of it what you put into it from that respect it's so so hard to actually make any success of it and, and hope to make any money out of it whether it's DJing or, or making records you know a lot of what I do does not earn money especially the, the making the music obviously the gigs you know I, I, that's that's how I'm earning my money most of the time but 
making music there's a you know I've, the hours that I put in to, to the stuff that I eventually release if you totted up you know all of that stuff I'd be way better off going and getting a job for minimum wage but of course it's not about that and, and I just don't know if people fully understand that you know they still think that there's this glamour attached I suppose there is in, in some respects but my reality is not glamorous you know I lock myself away working on music because that's what I'm compelled to do whereas other people might you know leap on the sort of you know the, the opportunity of some sort of celebrity and you know I guess it just depends what kind of person you are but yeah my advice is just don't think of it as a career <laughs> honestly it's, it's probably a bad move just just think of it in terms of something just one of the joys in life that that you know you can just love and have such fun doing but once once something becomes a job you know it can very often start to you know take a different shape that you don't like and, and before you know it you lose that passion I have to be very careful not to lose that you know I go through great phases of not wanting to make music and then the next minute boom I can't stop and then sometimes I really don't want to DJ you get a few bad gigs like as we discussed I don't want to go out and DJ then you get a couple of good ones ah oh, everything's alright again once it becomes your job it's very di it's very difficult to balance an act you know? but yeah that's my words of wisdom <laughs> And on that, we were done. The interview just topped about an hour and a half. And I felt only polite to uh, finish things there. So I said a massive thank you to DJ Format for inviting me to his home. And for being really open and for talking for so long. So just time to do a little bit of housekeeping. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can go back and check the others. We've got Mr. Scruff, Fred Deakin, Mark Ray, Jean-Claude from If Music. And we have forthcoming ones with Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer. Damien Harris from Skimp Records and Robert Louis from True Thoughts all on the schedule for the next couple of months so if you have enjoyed this podcast please do the honourable thing obviously subscribe share it on social media and tell your friends and uh, if you could leave me a obviously a five star review on iTunes that helps push it up the rankings a little bit more doing my very best to make these a more regular occurrence but due to other commitments and the time and effort that goes into each one of these it's pretty tricky and they kind of fall to the end of the uh, the to-do list but bear with me there are a few more coming this year and I uh, hope you enjoy them if you've got any thoughts please feed them back if you've got any suggestions for future future subjects then let me know and so yeah just to say thanks to you guys for listening it's you listening that makes kind of worthwhile making these in the first place and uh, yeah we'll hope to see you soon on the current state of music podcast take care of yourselves cheers cheers